Welcome to this episode of CRST The Podcast. In today's program, Professor Stefano Barabino, Professor of Ophthalmology and Head of the Ocular Surface Center at the Sacco Hospital in Milan, Italy, will lead the last of three discussions focusing on dry eye disease or DED. In this episode, we will be looking at DED from the patient's perspective, with insights from a DED patient who is also founder of the Dry Eye Foundation. We will also be talking about the treatments currently available for management of DED and the current unmet needs for patients with this condition. So dear colleagues, thank you very much for joining us for this podcast. This is the third of a series and we are talking about dry eye. In particular, in the first podcast, we talked about uh, dry eye as a disease of the ocular uh, surface. Then in the second one, we talk about the diagnosis. And today we're talking about uh, treatment, but also we're introducing a, a new perspective that is patient's uh, perspective. So today I, uh, I would like uh, to thank uh, uh, Rebecca Petris, uh, who is the executive director of the Dry Eye uh, Foundation in the United States. Thank you, Rebecca, for joining us today. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. And uh, I will also to introduce uh, Professor Michael Abetule. He's a head and chair of the ophthalmology department at the University of South Paris in uh, France. Thank you very much, Mark. Thank you, Stefano, for the confidence. So let's start with the uh, patient's perspective. I mean, we talk about a lot of dry eye. We talk about the technical things, but probably we don't think about the uh, what are patients uh, thinking about their disease and how they face this disease in their everyday uh, life. Rebecca, what is the patient's perspective when they have a dry eye disease? So for us patients, um, the thing that matters most generally is the symptoms we're experiencing and what the impact is on our quality of life and our daily activities. Um, I want to just say, just kind of by way of background on this, I stand at this really interesting information crossroads, if you will. I've spent the last 15 years listening to the experiences of people who are highly symptomatic uh, with dry eye, but medically, they're all over the map. There's people with severe disease, autoimmune, GVHD, OCP, Stevens-Johnson, limbal stem cell deficiency, lid closure issues, acoustic neuroma, Bell's palsy, just so many different things. Then there's people with more kind of common or garden variety, meibomian gland dysfunction, which is affecting people at younger and younger ages. There's nocturnal lagophthalmus, uh, people with neuropathic corneal pain who may or may not even have dry eye, but they've been diagnosed that way. Anyway, all these people across this broad spectrum have one thing in common, and that is they have substantial ocular surface symptoms, pain, and other symptoms that are really impacting their, their daily functions um, in life. So where we're coming from is, how do I get this under control? How do I um, bring it down to a level where it's not running my life, where I'm not thinking about my eyes all day, where it's not limiting me in how long I can spend at my job or how far I can drive or whether I can sleep through the night. Um, we're in search of symptomatic relief. I mean, of course we want to address diseases present, but to us, the beginning and the end of the story is 
our daily life impact from it. Rebecca, I would like to, to, um, um, to know if you have any idea in the US about the feeling of your patients about the level of uh, disease they have. We made a very interesting study in the Europe uh, in, in five different countries with five different languages showing that uh, in Europe, 70% of the patients with dry eye disease considered, considered the disease as a, uh, the dry disease as a discomfort, but 20 of them considered it as a real disease and even 10% considered the dry disease as, as a handicap. So it, it was very obvious uh, listening to these patients that some of them were really in the pain and in the um, uh, uh, a very bad quality of life. Do you have the um, uh, do you have uh, some um, studies in the U.S. showing the, the the same types of results? The thing with dry eye is that term is so broad and it's used to apply to so many different things that it's very difficult to really come up with reliable numbers when you've got so many people under the same umbrella that to then do like meta-analysis of um, studies about the symptom or, or other sides, it's um, just difficult to get accuracy there because it's too broad a net. Mm. I don't know if I'm really answering your question, but I think we use that term more broadly. I personally think of it not as dry eye, but rather ocular surface disease on the one hand and ocular surface pain on the other hand. And they have a certain degree of relationship, but not a very reliable one. This is why you get so many people with dry eye who say they've tried everything, they've done every treatment, but nothing seems to work for them. Sometimes they just, no matter how much you treat disease, it doesn't seem to affect the symptoms enough. Um, just a big, really big variety. I agree with you, Rebecca. I mean, we, we talk about a dry, and we mean very different things. And also in terms of, of symptoms, there are patients that are complaining about uh, maybe sporadic or intermittent symptoms and patients who have symptoms uh, every day. So uh, I totally agree with you. And uh, very recently we published a, a paper trying to uh, separate the different uh, types of the uh, dry eye. So I'm not going to, in, into that, but I think this is a very important uh, problem. Rebecca, in terms of uh, um, your relationship with, with the specialists, with the uh, ophthalmologists, how does it work? I mean, how do you feel? Uh, what is a patient's journey starting from like a symptoms to having a diagnosis and to have this uh, sort of relationship with ophthalmologists because you need to, your eyes checked many times during, during the year. How does it work for you? Right. So I'm thinking first about the onset. And here again, big variety. You've got some people who have mild symptoms for a long time. They don't know that there's something wrong that they should see a doctor for. They don't necessarily associate those symptoms with dry eye. They may be going on for a long time and then something happens that makes their symptoms increase enough that they're really motivated to get help and they end up in the doctor's office. Other people, it's a very sudden thing. I'm surprised, always surprised, even after all these years, how many people I hear from who describe it as something that just literally changed from one day to another. So anyway, for everyone, there comes this point where I need help. So I go to the doctor and 
typically the first doctor I see, I mean, here in the US, of course, we're more likely to see an optometrist first. Um, but whoever we see, typically the first time around, we get told you have dry eye and here's some drops. Um, we go away, we do that, it doesn't help, we go back. And then maybe there's something a little bit more, maybe there's plugs, maybe there's a wristasis prescription or um, something else. We go away, we do it, it doesn't really necessarily work. It doesn't, isn't changing the things we need to change. Um, so we get into this cycle of, I go to the doctor, I get a limited amount of information, I go away, nothing gets better, and I go back. So we constantly see people churning through four, five, six, seven, eight doctors before they get to someone who's actually helping, before they get to the kind of differential diagnosis that they need and get more treatment options than just the very most basic kind of plug and drop approach. Um, I mean, some of that's improving these days, certainly like diagnosis of meibomian gland dysfunction and things, those are getting better, uh, but we still see a lot of things just flying under the radar and we end up with just very, very anxious patients because they've gone to so many doctors, it gets confusing and stressful when you don't feel like you're getting actual answers. And then by the time you're on your fifth or sixth, it's really hard to then have confidence in anyone and say, okay, this is the one, they're right. Um, so it's a battle. That's what um, I struggle with on behalf of the foundation is trying to find ways that we can get information to people earlier so they don't churn through so much before getting some actual help. I think yes. eventually people find, eventually people get to someone who has the expertise to help eventually they get onto social media and they learn some of the practical side of dry eye, all the different things we can do, say, to get more comfortable at the computer or all the different products we can use to try and protect our eyes better at night. But from my standpoint, it's just really unfortunate that that information comes so late in the process. I would love to see people getting practical information earlier on. Mark, this is about actually also for us because the treatments that uh, are available are useful, but are not uh, the solution of, uh, to, to dry eye. So Mark, how can we try to summarize the current treatments for uh, dry eye? And then let's also try to share some uh, comments and some opinions with, uh, with Rebecca about the pros and cons of uh, uh, treatments that are available. So if we want to summarize, indeed, it's very difficult because this is, I this, know, I know, I know. this is quite the question of a life. Uh, okay, so um, the, the, the mainstay, of course, are the artificial tears, but all not, uh, all artificial tears are not equal. And uh, they act differently according to the, to the, um, the composition of the, 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 the eye drop. Uh, I mean, both the, um, the, the active molecule and also the excipient into uh, the, the bottle. So this is the first time, the first things to remember, they are not equal. The same, the second thing is to come back to the epidemiology of the dry eye disease. As Rebecca said, it is important to recognize the um, underlying membrane uh, gland disease if there is. And indeed, uh, most of the patients, at least more than uh, uh, 50 to 60% uh, of patients with a dry eye disease do have uh, 
mebulin gland disease uh, associated. So it is important to recognize it and to take it into consideration at the time of the prescription. So if we combine in this patient the lead hygiene, the minimal uh, way to improve that mebulin gland disease plus the artificial tears, we increase by far the percentage of people that will be um, uh, happy with uh, the, the way we are treating them. I uh, just want to uh, come back a little bit on the points that Rebecca raised about the, the journey. Um, in the, in the um, uh, European study we made, we observed that patients with dry eye disease had to see at least four, uh, three uh, eye care uh, professionals before being diagnosed as a dry eye disease in more than 30% of cases. And in these patients, the, 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 the right diagnosis was delayed by 24 months, which was a lot. It was a source in, in, in for lacking con confidence uh, in the, in the um, ophthalmologist and the eye care professionals. So it is important, again, to um, uh, highlight the fact that uh, we have to come back to the semiology when we uh, look at this patient to take time to examine them. And uh, this is according to uh, a, a good uh, clinical examination that we will adapt the treatment. And for example, Rebecca, there are, uh, Marcus said that there are many different artificial tears uh, on the market. That's completely true. For example, like in Italy, there are more than 250 different artificial uh, tears. But from, a, your, from the patient's perspective, are you aware that uh, the artificial tears are not all the same or you do not have this perception? It's interesting. I think we patients know they're not the same because we try one after another trying to find one that works differently. And most of us settle on something that works better than something else. But what I hear from a lot of patients is their doctors act like all over-the-counter drops are the same. So I just, I loved hearing Dr. Levitz will highlight that, that all drops are not equal. That's a message mm -hmm. that needs to get out there. I think that, um, if ophthalmology can take a greater role in guiding patients to both things like artificial tears, specific ones, and any other tools that can help manage comfort during the day, that all works to the benefit of patients. And yeah, we have tons of drops here, but there's just so often, you know, one particular one that works best for a patient. So there's some experimentation that goes on, but there's also just guidance on the ingredients. Why are we choosing a particular drop? Is it because of the oils in it or uh, hyaluronic acid um, or something? There has to be some rhyme and reason to what we're using. Yes. And Mark, what about anti-inflammatory treatment? We know that inflammation plays a, an important role in a most of the cases of uh, what are the current treatments and what are their pros and cons? So if, you, if we want to, to focus on the pathogenesis of the dry disease, we now um, are sure that the inflammation is the, the, the key to enter the disease. But however, not all patients need anti-inflammatory eye drops. I mean, eye drops that are known to, and, and, and that are specifically designed to be anti-inflammatory. But in the opposite, high drops, artificial tears, I'm sorry, that in the opposite, artificial tears are 
the first step to fight against inflammation because most of the artificial tears are very liquid, so they will dilute the inflammatory effectors, the inflammatory molecules on the, the ocular surface of the patient. So if we want to fight the inflammation, the first is to give to the patient the, the right artificial tears that is adapted to his uh, situation. I mean, for example, oily artificial tears in the case of MGD, but in the opposite, very liquid and uh, um, non-jealous uh, artificial tears for patients who have a, a, um, a pure lack of tear, for example, a pure lack of tears, for example. And if it is not sufficient, we can increase the level of uh, treatments against uh, inflammation. In some cases, we will um, target inflammation of the eyelids, and uh, we, we can use, for example, some uh, antibiotics eye drops in, in some cases. Um, in, uh, and if it is not sufficient, combined with the lead hygiene, and if the artificial tears, uh, the first line of artificial tears are not sufficient, we can move to more sophisticated eye drops. Some of them now contain osmoprotectants for the, for the for example, some, of, some others contain, contain antioxidant molecules. So for me, these are the second lines of artificial tears. If all of this is not sufficient, then it may be the time to move to real um, uh, anti-inflammatory drugs like cyclosporine, for example. In some cases, short pearls of, uh, of steroids uh, may be also uh, useful in, in, in patients, but uh, we have to take care about self-medication because we know that it can release the uh, symptoms of the patient, but there are some side effects with these steroids if they are taken on, the, on a long-term perspective. Uh, so in, so the, uh, indeed, there is a real ladder scale that has to be followed by the, um, the doctor. It's important to see his patient quite regularly, not too often, because we know that uh, the disease, um, even if the treatment if, if is adapted, will not resolve in some weeks only. But in my personal case, I, when I take a patient of, uh, in, in charge for the first time, I try to, to make, of course, the good and the right diagnosis from the beginning. I, I give the first line of treatment and I tell to the patient to come back in three to four months to have a first idea of the efficiency of my treatment. If it is not efficient, then I will move to the second line of treatment. And again, I will see the patient in, uh, in the next three to four months. Once the situation is quite good for the patient, and I think the objective is, are you happy with that situation, can you, can you have a normal life? Can you go to, to, to work normally? Do you have normal uh, social uh, activities? Then I consider that the treatment is uh, um, plus or minus well adapted. And then I, I, I ask the patient to come back in the next six months, because now we are in the, the, the steady state of the, of the disease. Well, I just love the idea of measuring where you're at in um, treatment by 
impact on life activities that just doesn't get talked about enough. We talk about it solely in terms of presence of disease and clinical signs and so forth. But from our patient standpoint, yeah, it's all about how this is affecting us day to day. Um, I really enjoyed your point about um, the role of artificial tears in inflammation. That's not a message that gets out there. Patients think of artificial tears as band-aids and we use them need-based as in my eyes are getting uncomfortable, I'm putting drops in. I think that something we patients can benefit from is being told to get ahead of it rather than just reacting once our eyes are getting that uncomfortable because there's obviously a process that's accelerating when they keep getting that uncomfortable. We've got some preventive work to do and getting more hands-on in directing us how we should use these things that we're sent away with um, would be really helpful to our community. If you, for, for example, if uh, you go to see an ophthalmologist and they prescribe you topical steroids or lifetograst or uh, topical cyclosporin, what is uh, your uh, impression? So are you thinking that uh, inflammation plays an important role? Are you scared about this kind of uh, treatment or you, do you think finally I'd find a doctor with a good solution to my problem? Mm. I think speaking for the community, yes to all of those. I mean, I'm thinking about like our social media groups or support groups online, the types of questions people post. I mean, it is a big relief when someone gets in the hands of a doctor who's got a plan, they're diagnosing them very specifically and they're saying, here's our plan for how we're gonna, if we're seeing inflammation, how we're gonna ramp that down. Here's your prescriptions, here's how this works um, and all that. Then. There's a lot of people very concerned about side effects of things. So they wanna know a lot. They wanna know the safety profile. Um, so they may be coming at it from a little bit different direction. There's a lot of fear out there about some of these treatments because of the what's being described as the chronic nature of the disease, right? I remember when, in, especially in maybe the first 10 years after Restasis came out, the messaging a lot of people were getting was you're gonna be on this forever. And for someone who's at an early stage and maybe they've got, they're really symptomatic, that's a scary thought that I'm gonna have a problem forever. And I'm not sure how people even know that it's going to be that long, but the messaging around it, I think matters a lot. People need to know how the treatment that they're being given, what, what does it do exactly? How long can I expect to be on it? Are there side effects I should be concerned with? The more information we get upfront about that, the better. I know there's difficulty with just, I mean, ophthalmologists don't have enough time to go over things in as much detail as we might like, but when they don't, what happens is we end up on social media and we're just reading up from other people's experiences, which aren't necessarily appropriate for us. We may be getting bad information. People go onto Facebook groups all the time, they read, the first five stories, and it might be five people who had bad experiences with lafitograst, and they say, oh, that doesn't work. I'm going to move on to the next thing. But it's not right. I mean, I think with a little more handholding and guidance from our doctors, we can embrace the treatments that we need. Great point. Mark, what do you think? Well, first of all, it's a pleasure to, 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 to hear Rebecca and about his feeling about um, what uh, doctors should do because in my in my personal 
um, experience and uh, it, is, it is exactly what we try to do with my team. First of all, when a patient comes to us, we try to explain him that uh, according to his stage of severity, it is unlikely that he will going worse in the future. I, 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 I follow uh, triadesis patients for now more than 25 years. I've, yeah, I think I have never seen a patient with a moderate dry disease and who be, uh, which became severe or very severe in the next few years. So it is very important to encourage the patient about this and to tell him that it is unlikely that he will become much more severe in the following years, except of course, if there is something new in his disease, in his systemic disease. The second point is that I also explain him that I won't cure him because I'm not, I'm not a magician, but in the opposite, I will try to make it, to make him accepting his disease because how common goal will be to reduce the symptoms and to improve the acceptability of the disease according to his usual life. So of course the goals are not the same if the patient if someone will stay at home uh, for uh, all the old days or someone who has a very important social life with, for example, uh, a conference uh, um, in front of many people or driving a lot of his, ca uh, um, his car or, or even uh, uh, driving a motorbike, for example. So we try to have a, a, a plan for his life and for his treatment and according and, the, the, and I'm sorry, and the, the final step, once I have said that, is to make a, a good clinical examination as precise as possible to try to circumvent all the components of the dry eye disease because we know that there, there is only one, there is not only one uh, key factor in the dry eye disease, there is not only inflammation, but there are also sometimes associated diseases like allergy, which is very common like epithelial abnormalities, like uh, lip abnormalities, like uh, sleep uh, um, apnea, etc. So we have to make a, a complete uh, drawing of the disease. And once we have uh, found all the, the components or at least most of them, we try to address them with the treatment. And then we will see what is the evolution. According to the evolution, we may uh, um, uh, change a little bit the, the, the tools we, are, we will use to, uh, at the end, try to reduce all the components of the dry eye disease. Because it is not uncommon, for, 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 for example, to see a patient with a very important meibomian disease and to focus only on this meibomian disease. But uh, four to five months later, once the patient has followed old um, all the advices about the membrane disease, when it comes back, the membrane disease is, is quite good, is improved, but the patient is not improved because now we can see that there was also some uh, 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 analogic component. And then we have to treat also the allergic components. And finally, the patient will be improved at the, 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 the following visit. So it is important, again, to adapt the treatment according to the evaluation of the patient and according to his goals.
And probably, Mark, uh, from our point, uh, from our side, it maybe it's also important to teach our residents about the ocular surface diseases and uh, dry eye, because the perception of a dry eye for many of our colleagues is that dry eye is just a lack of tears. But we know that this, this is not uh, the situation. And we are now aware that dry eye is a disease of the ocular surface system, and therefore is a very important disease. We're not talking about syndrome anymore. Now we are talking about uh, disease. Rebecca and Mark, I think that uh, you uh, agree with me also that it's very important to talk to each other. Maybe we don't do that enough. Maybe as an ophthalmologist, we should interact more with uh, patients, with uh, uh, patients' uh, organizations. Maybe also we should give more information uh, on social uh, media. And probably from the patient's perspective, we may uh, also uh, you may want to ask more information to, uh, to your ophthalmologist because it's very much important. Sometimes we don't give enough information, but probably also patients should ask more questions because it's very much, the interaction is very important. That's crucial. I mean, that's you know, a big part of the work that we do here at the foundation and just patient counseling is teaching people how to talk to their doctor, um, how to even like document symptoms if they're having trouble communicating about it using a symptom score or something, or just ways to communicate more effectively, a list of questions to take that's not gonna be overwhelming, but you know, a few, some strategies for uh, preparing for it, sending a note in you know, a day or two before the appointment to say, here's my concerns, here's my goals, so you can help keep an appointment focused. Um, I think for people who get very symptomatic, um, and there's a lot of us, dry eye is a high impact disease. We got troubles on a lot of fronts. It's closely associated with depression and anxiety. In our community, we see uh, pretty worrying rates of even suicidal ideation, which sounds extreme, but it's been part of the experience for a lot of people that are very symptomatic. So we got the mental health side, which is pretty well documented in the literature. We got the financial impact of a lot of over-the-counter stuff that we have to pay for, um, a lot of treatments that aren't necessarily covered by insurance and financial fears for the future if our work is being impacted. We've got social impact from people in our lives not understanding, um, having difficulty com communicating, explaining things to employers. We walk into the doctor's office with these huge needs on top of the medical need. And we put this huge burden on doctors that they, they can't possibly fix all these problems for us. Um, I feel that in improving communication between patients and doctors, it's helpful to even just explain it that way to be able to say, look, okay, here's a range of issues I'm seeing and here are the ones that I can help you with. I'm seeing um, medical issues I can address for you. We're gonna put together a treatment plan. I know you need some symptom relief to get more comfortable. Um, I've got some ideas for you or I have a place to send you to get more information about that. Um, and then even just highlighting that these other needs are something maybe they can go talk to their primary care doctor about. I think we have to have a way to not keep all of the problems associated with dry eye onto one doctor. It has to be a shared process. 
um, we have a little program that we call Dry Eye Happy Hour. It's a, a Zoom meeting for patients that we do every two weeks. And we had one last Friday, um, and this young man that was part of it, he had some really great insights. And one of them was he advised fellow patients to basically assemble a team. Don't look to just one doctor to solve all the problems. You want your ophthalmologist, there might be an optometrist if you've got scleral lenses, your primary care provider needs to know and be involved. Um, and, um, you know, maybe there's a role for a psych referral in there if you've got real problems with the depression and anxiety. So I really liked that picture of being part of a team and having kind of a shared burden. Yeah, I really like it, this uh, picture. Thank you very much, uh, Rebecca. Thank you very much, uh, Mark. We should work uh, together. And I like also the idea of like having uh, an happy hour uh, to share uh, some uh, ideas and also some uh, new uh, results from, uh, from the research in terms of uh, diagnosis and in terms of treatment about uh, dry eye. Thank you very much. Uh,